So over the last 18 months, we've discovered perhaps the difference between those things that we want, the things that we need, and that which we can't live without. And today, we're going to look at something that God has given us that Christians cannot live without, and that is the Holy Spirit. Um, and we hear that and see that in the membership of this particular church, the third vow uh, uh, in our membership process says this. We're going to look at this as sort of a backdrop to today's passage. The vow is this. Do you promise in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit to endeavor to walk as a follower of Christ? Do you promise in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit to endeavor to walk as a follower of Christ? And if you listen to that, you can hear what it's suggesting. And it's suggesting that Christians are so dependent. We're so dependent on the Spirit of God that we can't even make a promise to attempt to follow Jesus. That's not conditional on the Spirit's enabling and sustaining work. We cannot live without the Holy Spirit. Christians can't live without the Holy Spirit. And so the, that's good news. That's good news for the disciples, especially coming right before this chapter, because the disciples are uh, have just got up from the Lord's Supper. And their heads are spinning. And why are their heads spinning? Their heads are spinning simply because they've heard, they've seen their friend, their colleague, their fellow disciple Judas has betrayed them. Uh, their heads are spinning because they've been told that Jesus, uh, Jesus tells them that he's going to go away. For three years of ministry together, that he's going to go away. He's going to be with the Father. And there's all kinds of mystery that's wrapped around that. And their heads are spinning, their hearts are reeling. But he says, he ends the supper with a promise. And the promise is this, I've not abandoned you. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a counselor. I'm going to send you an advocate. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's good that I'm going away. And it's good that he's coming. And then he, they do what all of us tend to do after a big moment. They get up from the table and they walk and they talk. They go out into the night. They're not New Yorkers, so they're not walking through the city, right? They're walking through uh, fields, they're walking through vineyards. And I think that this passage comes out of Jesus taking what they're actually experiencing, what he's actually seeing, and, and applying it to their lives. And so he's saying, look, we're walking out here in actual darkness, but never forget that all around us, by the power of God, there is pulsating life moving. Though you can't see it, fruit is being produced. And he's saying to them, in the coming days, you're going to be plunged in the darkness. You're going to have dark nights of the soul. But know this, if you are connected directly to the true vine, not only will you return to your faith, but you will be fruitful too. So Christians can't live without the Holy Spirit. So why is it good that the Spirit is coming? Because he connects us to the vine. He counsels us to our deep desires. And because he advocates to us his truth. So first, he connects us to the vine. Now, as we jump into this metaphor, I think we should just know two simple things. If you were a first century Jew living in Palestine, then your life was connected to vines in two ways, agriculturally and biblically. 
So agriculturally, these vineyards were everywhere and, and the vines were everywhere. And, and these vines ran along the ground and they ran rampantly. So every year, whole communities would get together and they'd cut back these vines. And the vines had two branches on them. And some of those branches didn't produce fruit at all. And some of those branches did produce fruit. And so they would gather together and they would cut off those branches that didn't produce fruit in order to draw the strength of that vine into those areas that were already life-giving. So then they gather up all the branches that they'd cut off and they pile them into it. They put them in a pile, and just like we would if we were living in New England. Uh, we were gathering these. They gathered these things together and they burn them. So this was something that all the communities did. It's something that they knew about vines. They knew about vines agriculturally, but they also knew about vines biblically. Because the vine in the Bible is a symbol of the people of God. The vine was a symbol of Israel. And so uh, in Psalm 80, you read this. Uh, you brought a vine out of Egypt, the people say to God. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So the vine is a symbol of the people of God. But something interesting happened to that vine. The vine grew wild. The vine grew rampant, it grew unyielding, or excuse me, unwielding and unrestrained. It became entangled with other nations. And it no longer reflected the care or the commitment to the character of the vine dresser. And therefore, in Jeremiah 2, we read this. God says, but I was the one who planted you, choosing a vine of the purest stock, the very best. How did you grow into this corrupt? So the cry of the Old Testament prophets is essentially this. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 5, When God, when will you have regard for your body? So here's Jesus and Nazareth walking with his friends. He says to them, I am the true vine. I'm the vine that all the prophets have been waiting for. I'm the vine that responds to the vine dresser uh, with joy and, and uh, obedience and commitment and trust. I'm the vine that Israel was always supposed to be. Connect your life to me. And if you connect your life to me, my pulsating life will flow into you and you will be who you were supposed to be. See, it's a radical statement that he's making. I am the true vine. I'm the one that the prophets have been waiting for. He's simply saying, in, in no uncertain terms, that he's God. That he can provide life. That he, he offers them what nobody else can offer. Uh, he says, connect your life to me. Abide in me. Obey my commandments. That apart from him, it only makes sense, if that's true, if, when he says that apart from me, you can do nothing. So very basically, what are we connected to? What is your true source of life? What, what feeds your soul? Jesus says, hook your life up to me and I'll make you a person of growth. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Recently, I was, I was reading, uh, I read something about leadership. And, and the, the expert on leadership said that you are the average of your five closest friends. That if you think about their character and their integrity and their skills and maybe their, their success, you're probably the average of those five people. 
Now you're probably sitting there going, I'm gonna weed a couple of people out of my Before you do that, think about Jesus. Think about the 12 people that he surrounded himself with and recognize that he's nothing like them. Why? Because his closest fellowship, his closest relationship is within the Trinity, within the Godhead. He derives his identity and his person, his purpose from God. Think about this. Out of the 11 disciples, Jesus' closest companion is actually the Holy Spirit. In all of his life, his closest relationship is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with him from uh, the womb. The Holy Spirit is with him at the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit is with him at his ascension. All of his life is with the Holy Spirit. Their relationship is so insane that what we learn in the scriptures about them is that they both come from the Father in different ways. They both bear witness to the Father. They both heal. They both teach. Though they're distinct persons, there's such unity within these persons that the Holy Spirit is actually called the Son of the Spirit. And so when Jesus says he has to go away, we begin to see why. He has to go away. Why? Because he's, he's flesh and blood. How is he going to connect his life to not just those 11, but generations of followers? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. See, what that means for the disciples is that they are going to experience the same divine presence that they had with Jesus. Let me say it how I wrote it. It means that the same divine presence that the disciples experienced with Jesus, they will continue to experience without him by the Spirit. And that is true of every generation of Christians from then until now. So... Why is it good that the Spirit is coming? So that he can connect us to the true one. Second, it's good that the Spirit comes because he counsels us into our deeper desires. So according to 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit is the one who knows the deep things of God. The Spirit is the one who knows all the ins and outs of God, who explores the vast regions, you might say, of the Godhead. But the Spirit is also the one that searches all things. And when when it says the Spirit searches all things, what he's saying is he, he searches every, all the vast regions of you and I, of our souls. And therefore, he knows both our strong desires and our deeper desires. And our strong, he knows our stronger desires and he knows our deeper desires, and they're not the same thing. Our strong desires are those things that we often think we can live without, but in truth, we absolutely can't. Often those things are things we probably should live without. Our strong desires can be connected to those things which some of us might call idols, those things that are really good things that are in our lives, but we live for them. They control us. We don't control them. They're good things, right, that have become ultimate things. But the deeper desires are tied to those, value, those life values related to meaning and significance. What are some of the deeper desires that you have will probably come intuitively. I want to be a good man. I want to be a good, I want to be a good spouse. I want to be a good partner. I want to be a good neighbor. I want my life to have value, mean something, do something. These are, I want to honor God. 
But what happens is, is our strong desires get entangled with our deep desires. And when they do, they compete. And our deep desires get corrupted by our strong desires. Our strong desires undermine and they weaken our deeper desires. And therefore, we trade away integrity and meaning and purpose and loving relationships for what? For instant gratification. But as you abide in Christ, the Spirit of God counsels us away from the stronger desires and towards our deeper desires. And he does that through the Word of God. So if you look in Galatians 5, and Galatians 5 is one of the definitive places that uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how the Spirit interacts with our stronger desires. And I'll just read a, a couple of verses here. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, spirit of the, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are ethnic, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are strong desires. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And there you see the, the, the strong desires that all of us feel on some level. I mean, if you go through this list, right, it's so easy to, to recognize things like enmity and jealousy and uh, sexual immorality and, and drunkenness and, and sorcery, you know, maybe not since college, but, you know, all of these things we can relate to. What are the deeper desires? The deeper desires that we aspire to are, are the fruit of the Spirit. And so the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to counsel us, to convict us and to convince us that those deeper desires are actually worth fighting for. That those are the things that, that um, we were made for. And so let me ask you, uh, as, as we read this, when you pray, where are you praying from? Are you praying from your, your strong desires or are you praying from your deeper desires? Are you praying that your strong desires are satisfied? So you can get through the day, are you praying for the deeper desires that will sustain you no matter what circumstances you live? God has given every man strong desires and has given the Holy Spirit to draw us. Excuse me, God has given every man deeper desires and has given us the Holy Spirit to draw us to those. So people join the church for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but a healthy reason to join the church is that you can enter into fighting your stronger desires, working towards your deeper desires in a healthy and safe place. And this is the place, storefront should be a place where we're able to be honest and open. Um, uh, one of the primary places uh, and primary roles of the church is to be a, not a, a museum of saints, right? but a hospital for sinners come and say, this is who I am, and I cannot do this by myself. I can't enter into this fight by myself. 
I need help. So the church is a place in which that can take, in which that battle can be fought. So he connects us to the blind. He counsels us to our, to our deeper desires, but he also advocates for the truth. Now, what's an advocate? An advocate is one who, who stands for you and presents for you and, and uh, vouches for you. But sometimes an advocate is not just there to, to uh, represent you, but sometimes an advocate has to turn and advocate. In order to advocate for you, the advocate needs to advocate to you. The advocate needs to sort of come across the aisle and stand next to you and remind you of those things that are actually true when you refuse to believe that they're true. And, and the advocate is such that he's now going to, going to come to the disciples, even though they've scattered, even though they've been abandoned, even though they're experiencing dark nights of the soul, and he's going to remind them of everything that Jesus has already told them. He's going to remind them that though they've been faithless to him in the next two or three days, that he will bear fruit in his and he reminds them by his own honor. By his own honor. Where, where do we see that? In verse 16, Jesus says, says this to the disciples. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, when we read... When we read uh, verses like, you did not choose me, but I choose you, if you come from a kind of reform background, where is your point of view? You go to predestination, we start talking about philosophy and all that kind of stuff, but that is not what actually I think Jesus is trying to get across here. What he's trying to get across is, I chose you. On my honor, you're going to be bearing fruit. I promise you that. You need to prepare for that. He says, you need to prepare that your, your deeper desires, that your desire to, to live out of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, rather than all of these strong desires, you will experience that you will, be, you will bear fruit because of me. And then he says something that is pretty challenging. Look in verses 7 and verses 17, and I'll be honest with you, this is a section where I've often just moved past because it's in some ways too free. Jesus says, he says to his friends, ask anything and it will be given. Ask anything in my name, whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. So what is happening? Is Jesus uh, all of a sudden going Disney? Um, is he justifying in anything both those culture? Is he encouraging you know, expressive individualism? No. Neither is he thinking of your strong desires. What Jesus is saying is that when one is engrafted into me, when one has been cleansed by my word, when one is convicted to endeavor to obey my commands, to love and to walk with me based on my name and based on my character, you can ask anything. My Father wants you to ask because he wants to give it to you. Jesus is our master, but he invites us to be his friends and he invites us to be partners in his restoration. And therefore, he says, What do you need? Ask me, I will give it to you. And I think, you know, 
something, when your character is shaped in such a way that it's so defined, so formed, the way that he's talking about it, you really are only going to come up with two or three things that are clear for generally speaking. And I would, I'll just share what mine is of late. Some of you guys know this. Mine of late, you know, I could pray a thousand different prayers out of my strong desires, but when I, when I really pray of my deeper desires, which are more and more becoming the bedrock of my foundation, I simply say, God, I just want to love you more. I don't love you. My deepest experience, Lord, help me love you the way that I need to love you to be a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good friend, to be a pastor. I need to love you more, but I also need to love your word more because I don't love your word as much as I need to. I don't look to it as much as I need to. But you give me that. You help me with that. Lord, I don't love people as I should. I'm not as interested in people as I need to be. Lord, will you give that to me? So that's the prayer of my life. And I have to imagine your prayers are probably more general, just like mine. God, I want to love you more. I want to love your word more. I want to love people more. I want to, be, I want to know people more. Would you give me the ability to be able to do what you've called me to do? God wants to give you the desires of your heart. Ask him. Anything you ask in his name, he longs to give it to you. He longs to give it to you. It's on his honor. He'll give it to you. But lastly, how do we know how good a friend is? We know a good friend because they stand by you through thick and thin. We know that Jesus is the advocate that we need, right? Because when he stands before God, he stands before God as one who's come through the fire. Jesus isn't a fair weather friend. He's not a fair weather advocate. He's one who comes before God as the righteous one. And in the next few hours, he shows us what a faithful friend he actually is to those who are not as faithful to him. He shows what the committing to his deeper desires actually brings. And we see, a, you know, a burst of the fruit of the Spirit. And where do we see that? Well, let me just run through some of these or some of these fruit, some of this fruit. Out of love, what does Jesus do? He commands his disciples more than anything to love one another. He commands them to love one another out of joy. What does he say in verse 22? He says, My prayer is not for the disciples alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Out of peace, he heals the severed ear of one of the soldiers who comes to arrest him. Right? See, all of this is leading to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of this is leading to a crucial point. And it's in this, this crucible that all the joy, or excuse me, all the fruit of the Spirit begin to bloom. Out of his patience, he prays for those who will slay him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He, uh, he shows his kindness. Uh, when Judas with, with the Roman soldiers comes to capture him, he reminds Judas that he's never stopped being his friend. He reveals his goodness. Why? Where? On, the, on the, uh, the cross, he promises the thief, today you will be in paradise. He shows his faithfulness. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. He shows his gentleness when he prays for Peter, even though he knows that Peter will forsake him. 
last lady shows his self-control when he stays on the cross so that he can advocate on our behalf. And he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the God. This is the God that we worship. This is the God who sends his son. This is, the, this is the God who provides his son. This is the God whose son uh, gives his life for us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that reality to our lives even now. The hope of this church is that we will be a radical expression of the love of God. And the love of God is, is the kernel, you might say, in which all the fruit of the Spirit and so in the coming weeks and months, maybe years, may we be a church that is recognized for not just love in general, but joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-discipline. May we be a community that addresses one another's strong desires as we help each other actually live out the deeper desires. May we be a community that loves one another as Jesus is loved. Heavenly Father, Lord, how will this neighborhood interpret us? In a community, in a city that doesn't read the Bible, we are probably the only Bible in our lives, the only Bible that people have ever seen. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. Would you, by the power of your spirit, continue to help us grow and change because we are connected to the vine? We pray this in Jesus' name.